Hi, this is Apex. I'm Phil Sanson. I'm Bruce Miller. Bruce, do you know what today is? The day of the week, or...? No, in terms of uh, milestones in our lives. This is the final episode. It's the final episode of Apex. That's that's quite something. I'm quite sad. I know. I'm really sad. It's taken... This has been months and months. This has been half a year for me. It's your little baby, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And yours. You're like the, the surrogate. Yeah, maybe a sort of a godparent. Yeah, or like a like a weird uncle. True to form, I've got two stories about monkeys to bring to you today. You blimmin' love them, don't you? I just can't get enough. Uh, so the two monkey stories I've got, uh, one's about love, the other's about art. Art and love, which is quite a positive ending for the show, I think. I like that. Do you like it? I do. Let's get straight in. Okie dokie. First up is the question of whether humans have good qualities, as well as bad, that separate us from the rest of the pack. And so I spoke to Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy over Skype from her house in Northern California. Hello, it works! Yes, amazing! Uh, I'm Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, and I am an emeritus professor of anthropology at the University of California at Davis. She's written five books. She's a leading researcher in animal behavior. She's a feminist and a grandmother. She's optimistic about the human condition. We were nicer, much more pro-social apes long before we became the brainiest apes. Long before we had language and culture and these, these abilities we're so proud of, we were actually more other regarding than other apes are. Which is a totally different perspective to that which we took in earlier episodes, isn't it, Bruce? Yeah, we painted a pretty dark picture, didn't we? It got bleak. We were talking about aggression. Um, we were talking about language. But this is a, a, a way more optimistic perspective. And it's her idea that that's sort of what came first for us. My question is why humans became so much more other regarding, so much more interested in what someone else is thinking or feeling, very key precursor, by the way, for language, which is one of the really big differences between humans and other animals, which opened all kinds of possibilities for our species. Why humans became so other regarding? It sounds like a simple question, but her research is the result of decades of work. When she started her career, it was more simple. She was researching infanticide in Langer monkeys. Infanticide is, is uh, killing uh, an infant by a conspecific, by a member of the same species. A crazy behavior and very rare to observe among Langers. But infanticide wasn't a new concept when Sarah first went out into the field. She spent nine years total observing the Langers. But by her first field season, she had realized something. The main hypothesis for why you get infanticide, that it was pathological, a kind of mental defect. 
That hypothesis, she realised, was completely wrong. Males were quite tolerant of the infants born in their own group, and that males were only attacking infants when a male entered the breeding system from outside it. They were only attacking unweaned infants, and they were only attacking offspring born to females they hadn't ever bred with. That just means that um, the fella is making sure that any mothers don't have any kids so he can breed with them and that she can invest in his kids rather than some other guys. Exactly. And, and crucially, it makes sense. It's not pathological. There's a purpose to infanticide, which means that it probably evolved naturally rather than being a pathological problem. This was a hugely controversial idea. So Sarah's research made some prominent people surprisingly angry. One of the grand old men in my field, Sherwood Washburn, stood up at a meeting and when I finished talking, turned his back to me and turned to the audience to say he'd sent students to my study site and those monkeys were crazy. (laughs) They were deranged. And then he stormed out of the room. (laughs) Sounds like a character, doesn't it? (laughs) Deary me, poor one. That's what it was like for Sarah, um, especially being a young woman working in a male-dominated field. But since her early career... This idea has become dominant in how people think infanticide evolves. More importantly, it was a chain of logic to get from how infanticide works for her to humans becoming more empathetic. It goes a little like this. First, you get infanticide happening for a variety of reasons. Um, Sometimes you find mothers actually eliminating their own offspring or abandoning it under conditions when it's not a good time to have an offspring and she wants to recoup those resources so she'll eat the baby she just had. Or you might have females killing another female's baby because they're competing for some resource. For mothers and babies, this is a daily risk which poses important consequences. When you're an ape baby, anyone could hurt you. For humans, This is a problem because of our huge brains. 1,350 cubic centimetres of grey matter. About the size of a small melon. Over triple the size since our last common ancestor with chimps. Growing a brain this size takes a lot of energy. 13 million calories from birth to when they're producing as much as they consume. And that's about 40,000 Happy Meals. Especially tricky in prehistoric Africa. So in the troop of early human apes, a mother needs other apes in her group to help rear her hugely needy offspring. Making sense so far? Yeah, I'm with you. An ape that has youngsters that are dependent for so long, so very dependent, there's no way that such a mother could have raised her children without a lot of help. But this mother has a problem. She's only going to hand her baby over to someone she can trust not to kill it, which, as we've learned, some other apes might. Suddenly... There's a need to understand more than your own thoughts and feelings. You have to be able to work out the intentions of others. They have to figure out who's going to be helpful, what their intentions are, because not everybody's that nice. And they're going to figure out who's going to be generous and a good caretaker and appeal to that person. And not only does the mother need to know who to trust, but so does the kid. What about the youngsters in this system? They're developing in a context where they're conditioned to look to others. So they need other adults that are going to help them out. Why do people go out of their way to look after a child that isn't theirs? That's a key question. Why cooperate 
When you look at even some of our closest relatives, they don't do this. Chimps do sometimes share food, but it's more often allowing somebody else to snatch something. Uh, a mother might allow her youngster to take some food, but it usually won't be, it'll be the, the husk, or it won't be the best part of the food that the baby gets. And it's very different from the kind of food sharing that actually characterizes every human society that's ever studied. Every human society we know of shares food. Kids are fed by their parents and extended family and family friends for years. It's so normal that we hardly even think about it. If you turn around and you think about this from a traditionally male-oriented survival of the fittest point of view, it makes absolutely no sense. Evolution is driven by men fighting for resources, fighting to control meetings with women. We should be aggressive, uh, start wars to defend our own resources. That's the traditional narrative. Our energy, our food, and our time should be invested only into our own kids, those that carry our genes. But this isn't the case. And in Sarah's narrative, women are doing some of the driving of evolution. And you think about how costly it is to build and maintain this incredibly greedy organ, the brain. You realize, whoa, that mother had to, you know, it wouldn't have been worth it to produce an infant this dependent and this needy unless she could have a pretty good idea that she was going to have allo-maternal assistance to help both care for and provision that youngster. When our brains are that large, our mothers had to be sure that they were going to be able to raise their children. And so we need other people. So what came first, the um, women helping each other out in raising children, uh, which facilitated the big brains, or the big brains requiring women to help each other out with rearing children? Uh, what, what she's saying, it, her theory is that... Um, this sort of allo maternal assistance, which is the other parents helping the actual parent, mm -hmm. enabled sort of increased growth of brain size. Okay. Developing these ideas has been a major part of Sarah Hurdy's career. She really did help upend the established order within her area of evolutionary biology. Early evolutionary interpretations were so androcentric. They were so male-centered. It was like, well, all, all females are mothers and they're breeding as much as they're having as many children as they can, and that's that. But what's interesting is which males are going to be the most successful. That was the norm point of view back in the 90s. People working in human evolution were almost all men. So it took scientists like Hurdy to drag forward the idea of female agency in evolution. It's sort of feminism brought to science. You know, I never really called myself a feminist, though after a while I couldn't deny the charge because you certainly don't want to say I'm not a feminist, you know. And But for me, a feminist is simply someone who thinks that women and men have equal rights in the, in the human context. And in a scientific context, it means we pay equal attention to the selection pressures on females and males. So it's not a political thing, it's a question of doing your science better. And while she was doing this, she had three kids of her own. It got her thinking about ideas of attachment, how she could so happily give up her own life to take care of her children. 
but then happily give up her children to be taken care of by others. Like we said, it doesn't make any sense traditionally that human moms should so willingly give up their kids to be raised by, say, other relatives, until you realize how important this role of alloparents, other people acting in the roles of parents, must have been when we evolved. That means that not just parents, but everyone, is conditioned to find babies really cute. Babies have this transformative effect on humans. Which, being a scientist through and through, Sarah Hurdy decided to investigate. When my first grandchild was born, I started to do baseline samples of my oxytocin levels. And a I hormone with lots of functions, but is released at birth to make sure that the mother bonds with the baby. And after spending two hours holding my grandson for the first time, there was a 63% surge in my oxytocin levels. So it's, I wasn't a parent. I was an alloparent, but I had this. My, my husband showed up in New York to see his grandson a few days later. And even before I hugged him at the front door, I handed him a tube and I said, you spit here. And then I froze it. And then over the next two days, I was collecting his saliva. It took him longer, but he had the same surges. So alloparents as well as parents. You don't need to be as committed to measuring hormone levels as Sarah to see that everyone who comes into contact with a baby will get some of these good, loving feelings that make us want to take care of them. Oh, did you also know, Phil, babies can uh, sense where a nipple is? Uh, like What, if... from like 30 meters? Yeah, yeah, no, no, literally, they can like, I don't know what it is, hormones or like smell or something. Is it like spidey sense, but nipple sense? Yeah, and they can like, so they're like blind and they can just crawl their way over and find a nipple. Would you believe it if I said I had that? <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> That's not acceptable. <laughs> Stick around after the break. Monkey number two. You're back listening to Apex from 97.2 Cam FM. I'm your host, Phil Sansom. I'm Bruce Miller. This is part two on art. And it starts about five years ago in Toronto, when an artist by the name of Pockets Warhol was just about to reach international stardom. He had just opened a show at a local gallery, and was later to have his work hosted at showings in Naples and Helsinki. He has an abstract, sort of colour-based style. What propelled him to fame was a stunt that a local newspaper pulled during his first show. So they put one of his abstract art pieces on the front page of um, a major paper here. Next to it, they put a piece of abstract art by Joni Mitchell for a comparison. People couldn't tell the difference. Which isn't totally impressive, except that, true to the form of the episode, Pockets isn't a person. He's a capuchin monkey. And his mentor and primary caregiver is Charmaine Quinn. 
I'm a primate caregiver at Storybook Farm, Primate Sanctuary. I've been working um, for the last five years when Pockets arrived as a, um, a former pet. But she's worked all over the world, including with orangutans in Borneo. And what she's learned is how incredibly intelligent monkeys are. They're very smart. They need to be um, constantly um, enriched as far as things that they're doing during the day. Like monkeys can't just sit in a cage and just, they get bored. So in the wild, they'd probably be using different things to do. Like they're probably doing the stone tools, a hammer, they use things like that. But for monkeys that have been rescued from captivity and put in sanctuaries, to give them a good quality of life, you need to engage them in other ways. Letting monkeys paint is common, especially behind the scenes in zoos. Charmaine has volunteered at the Toronto Zoo for the last 15 years with different primates, many of whom do artwork as enrichment. When Pockets first arrived at the sanctuary, she was watching him interact with his exhibit, trying to think of things for him to do. Just sort of um, trying to keep him busy and doing enrichment with him and decided to offer him paints, non-toxic children paints. And being a particularly clever caption, he takes to painting immediately. And he's moving colors around, he's moving strokes. He does a lot of hand strokes and then he switches his hand and moves it into another direction. And he produces art, which is unsurprisingly bold, full of color and movement. When I started working with him, I thought he looked like Andy Warhol. So I attached the Warhol name to his name. And once he got his name, that's when the media picked up on him big time. Because of the name, it sort of put him into the limelight, and, and people realize that they that monkeys do paint. Now I can just see where this is going. What? In a second, you're going to say, and that means art isn't uniquely human. And I'm sorry, a monkey cannot be Picasso. <laughs> you sure? Why can't a monkey be Picasso? Well, because they don't. Yeah, my point is, he couldn't produce the range of human art. Okay. But... As art as a as a collective body. If you put a bunch of monkeys in the room, they'd all produce a similar stroke style and mismatch of colours, you know. But you're saying that doesn't count as art. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that humans have got something uni uniquely above that. You know what? Maybe, but I think you're going to change your mind. Okay. All right. Bruce, I've got two pieces of art to show you on my computer screen. Uh -huh. One is by Joni Mitchell. Right. One is by Pockets Warhol. Okay. You're going to try and guess which one is which. It's monkey versus human. <laughs> okay. So, on the left, we have a, I'm going to say a palette of blues, greens, and yellows. On the right, we have... Reds, greens, browns, blues. Um, it's perhaps more chaotic, less centered in the page. Um, more variable strokes, I'm going to say. And I, I will admit that it is actually difficult to tell which one's by a monkey. Mainly because I don't really back abstract art particularly, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you not? Uh, not not greatly. I think when I've got someone there telling me about the sort of, you know, the thoughts behind it, the emotions and stuff, if there's got a bit of a story. If you take a lot of art out of context and remove the story from it, then it just becomes an object that doesn't really mean much. And then it's, you know. Would you say 
Would you say you don't value it, though, just because you don't have the context? Well, I think the, the human story behind it is part of what you're... What's wrong with the chimp story? Capuchin story behind it. Well, the problem is then with other minds. We can't access what the Capuchin's thinking. I think you just have to, like, admit that abstract art counts as art. Well, it'd be interesting to see, in that sense, say you've got a stressed Capuchin and a chill Capuchin, and if they did very different art, then I'd be like, whoa, those two pieces of art have got a bit more value to me because I can kind of see, oh, yeah, that's an angry monkey, that's a stressed monkey. Well, let's let's compare the two on your screen. Okay. Okay, I'm going to say the one on the right, which is seems to be a bit less uniform, is the monkey. You're wrong. Oh, no way. You're wrong. That's great. I'm so happy. little context for the Joni Mitchell. It's called Garden Party. And that, But surely this is the key bit, the fact that you're giving the context that's where the appreciation for the art comes in i mean the only reason we can't give the context for the caption is because we don't speak caption yeah but but that's the important bit isn't it art is like a human thing because it's a communication between other humans conveying of emotions yeah but uh just because our art doesn't only take on value once you like know the context yeah i just think it adds something you know How does a monkey paint? Are they painting like we do? Do they see in their mind what they want to put on the canvas? Why do they do it? Let's start small. Does he have a favorite color? He does. He, his favorite color is red. How about different media? Is it specifically painting he can do? Can he sketch or sculpt? I've tried to give him other things like chalk, and but he prefers to use the, the paint. I think it's because it's colorful for him too. So far, seemingly so good, but not really, I guess, what I would call art, and I'm sure not what you would call art, um, which maybe might be intentional creation, creation with context. Is that fair? Yeah, intentionality. Intentionality. So see, it's sort of seeing something in your mind's eye and aiming to create it. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. So the question is then, is he painting real objects? I'm not sure if he's if it's through things that he sees around him. I don't think I don't think he's at that level. I think it's more that he sees it as something enjoyable, like a child would. And that's another that raises another good point. Does a child's parents pin the the art mm. air commas there air quotations rather mm. um, on the fridge? But is that art? How old do you have to be to then produce something that's considered art? That's a good question. Let's see if we can figure out from the context of pockets. I guess just because he's not painting something in particular doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing. Abstract human art isn't really meant to be a depiction of something real either. I can't deny, and I hope you can either, that given that you can tell the difference between his and Joni Mitchell's artwork, what pockets does is pretty impressive for a caption. He's, he's looking at the paint and he's moving it in a direction that he seems to prefer to do. So he's not just throwing it around the canvas. He's actually doing something. I think people are looking at that as, you know, are, are primates or non-human primates capable of artistic expression? I think they are. Obviously, you have to be very wary of judging an animal's intelligence from its, air quotes, artistic expression. You can get videos of elephants painting with their trunks, uh, although Charmaine has her doubts about whether or not the elephants are being forced. When it comes to pockets in particular, though, 
She sees him as definitely having a human-like mind, although a childish one. His mind is very much like a child's mind. Um, so I think he likes, he looks at the artwork. He's, when he's doing it, he's studying it. He's looking at, he's looking at where he's moving the paint. So I know that he's doing something special. Um, I, I just think it's more similar to what something like a, a child's mind would be. If a capuchin has about the same intelligence as a child, a lot of people would, of course, argue that it should have similar rights to a child. Organizations like the Great Ape Project are campaigning to give apes certain rights under international law. The animal rights movement continues to grow every year. You know, I think it's just it's a matter of time before people start to look at these as sentient beings. I think they're looking at them right now as just maybe some sort of, you know, a pad and, a, and people want them as a pad or in a store. They want to buy a monkey. Really, really bad idea, even though it's tempting for a lot of people. Because monkeys do look a lot like human babies with sort of big heads, big eyes. They're cute. People try to keep monkeys and get very attached to them. They do get strong. Um, they do grow up to be very, very <laughs> destructive in the house. They will tear everything apart. You can't keep these monkeys in situations in a home. It's just not a good idea from either perspective. And people are becoming more aware about the dangers of keeping monkeys as pets. It raises the question, though. Why keep them in sanctuaries? While it's better than a house, it's not exactly a natural environment. Keeping them in sanctuaries does affect them badly. You know, these are these are situations where we've we've changed the whole culture of these animals. I saw that in Borneo. I saw orangutans who are a solitary animal now grouped together at sanctuaries. So the humans have stepped in now and they've changed the culture of these animals. Ideally, all these animals, including Pockets Warhol, should be living in the wild, back in forests. Wouldn't have his paints there, though, would he? Maybe you could get some berries there and just smear them on a cowhide. You'd never have painted, other than your berries on a cowhide scenario. But ideally, even Charmaine would have preferred to see Pockets living wild. They really should be in a forest with other primates living the life that they're supposed to live and that they deserve to live. They shouldn't really be living like this. Long term, the ideal situation is no primates in sanctuaries. Short term, like you said, they are far better than the alternative, though. The alternatives for these animals can be much, much worse. I've worked at a fauna foundation in Montreal, and there were uh, laboratory uh, chimpanzees there as well, who they offered, and these animals have never seen sunlight. So they're coming into a sanctuary where they've never even been outside. They've never seen the sky. They've never seen the rain. There was one orangutan that I worked with just this past week who had been living in someone's garage for 20 years. He was a big male orangutan. It took them ages to get the feces, everything out of his hair. Um, when they finally let him out, he looked up at the sky for the first time in 20 years and he wouldn't come in. They said it started to rain and he wouldn't even come in. He wanted to be there in the rain. These animals are supposed to be in the rainforest. They're not supposed to be in a garage or in someone's house. So some terrible situations that these animals end up in. Of course, sanctuaries are necessary to help them out. When people found out Pockets Warhol is a caption in captivity, there was some backlash. People thought he was being forced against his will to produce the paintings. It couldn't be closer to the opposite. If people are, are aware that they, they can understand that he is in a sanctuary, he's not supposed to be there, but we try to make his life as, as good as possible. And crucially, the art he makes is for him and him alone, which is 
for me, a good enough reason to define it as art in the first place. Any animal mind that, that's capable of, of thinking or doing, like I know that, that maybe not dogs or cats, but I think that primates especially that are capable of thinking and reasoning are able to do artwork. And I don't think it's limited to humans alone. I just, in my head, I kind of question, no doubt that if I were to create art and no one ever saw it, I'd still call it art. Sure. But a big part of sort of, I don't know, going into a gallery or something, what you're doing when you're appreciating art is you're imbuing that art with your own emotions and your own interpretations. And that's a massive part of it. And in, I don't know, if the monkey isn't capable of interpreting art, can they still be an artist? Because I see art is is a big part of a dialogue. I, I'm not sure the capuchin monkey could see someone else's art and have a sort of an emotional response to it or something. Or at least it would be interesting to find out whether they could interpret art or have responses to art. Because I think that's just as much of what the art is. Well, given that we don't know whether they could interpret it or not, do you not think we give them like a bit of benefit of the doubt, given that he's already making some? My point is, we can say that that is art, but it's we're only a, we're the ones able to appreciate it. Art. He's never able to appreciate it as art. Maybe. So you're saying maybe that we're that's, giving that's it the status of art because we're the highly cognizant beings, you know. So you're saying that art remains something in the human domain because art is something that requires appreciation to be art. Yeah, put a bunch of monkeys in the Fitzwilliam Museum, and they're gonna there's going to be feces everywhere put a bunch of humans there the amount of feces on the wall is going to be significantly less i don't know i mean well i do know that have you been to the fits recently <laughs> uh i don't know if he's enjoying making the artwork that sort of just seems to suggest like a, a little bit of appreciation and and like what um charmaine was saying he's he sort of knows what he's doing he's like sticking within the canvas which is a crucial part he is moving things sort of like rhythmically and like methodically. Yeah. He's got the same like repeated strokes. Um, he's got a favorite color even. So I don't know. Well, it's, it's certainly like very, I don't know. It's a very difficult question, certainly. Mm. But I just feel slightly uncomfortable with, or at least saying that the monkey is on the same level as everything, every other artist, you know? You think? Maybe yet again, we've come to the conclusion that it's a continuum. <laughs> and monkeys are capable of some some rubbish art now that you've said that it's been six episodes uh-huh. I think we should summarize everything that we've learned what was episode one episode one was the orangutans that could whistle okay and god we... that was a lifetime ago yeah it was wasn't it yeah. <laughs> I found grey hairs the other day <laughs> in my head I kid you not no so since recording that I've become an old man do you think there's a, a like a connection? Uh, quite possibly. The stress is co- causing grey. <laughs> we, so we've come to the end of episode six. I think we're. I don't think we're much closer than the start of episode one. I think we had some pretty good ideas start of episode one that it was going to be like a continuum, that we weren't going to find any like significant things. Although we did find some significant things. Well, to be fair, you've taken a very evolutionary stance. Sort of on the episodes where we've continued uh, concluded it's a continuum. That's when we've been looking at an evolutionary continuum, anyway. So it kind of makes sense that we conclude that, doesn't it? Yeah, and then on the episodes where we haven't, what do you say? There was like well, on the robot one, we were saying it, machines can do it, and 
we're just a more extended version of other forms of intelligence. We weren't saying that it was unique. Yeah. And that completely fits with the idea of evolution because it'd be weird to say that we've evolved from a common ancestor with apes and further back common ancestor with fish or whatever and then say, but weirdly, despite all of these gradual changes, there was a point where suddenly, bam, we we were just given these human qualities. That would be really bizarre. That wouldn't fit with our worldview at all. I think you could probably still say we have some human qualities in the same way that we're unique, but so is every other animal that's at the top of its sort of little tree of tree of life. I think I think if we're talking about the animal perspective of the show, you've got to say we're unique and so is everyone else. I'm gonna go out and appreciate some squirrels or something. You've been listening to Apex, the final episode, episode six, on ninety seven point two CamFM or online. Send us a message on the Facebook page, Apex Dash CamFM. If you want to get in touch, if you loved us, if you hated us, if you got corrections, if you've got just sort of like weepy, heartfelt messages. Yeah, if you just listen, tell us, because that would be nice to know. Yeah. It's It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for sticking with the journey if you've listened to all six episodes. I've been Phil Sanson. I've been Bruce Miller. And special thanks in that episode to Sarah Blafferherdy and Charmaine Quinn. A special thanks to uh, Steph Friend for subscribing. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I've enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, cheers, Mum. Thanks. Thanks, Dad. And toodly. Goodbye.